Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Cannabis Capital, the podcast. I'm your host, Ross O'Brien, founder of venture capital firm Bonaventure Equity, lifelong entrepreneur, author of Cannabis Capital, the book. There will be plenty of Easter eggs of shameless plugs of the book, as always. And as you know, in this podcast, we like to go beyond the headlines. So I'm thrilled to have round two with a good friend and I think one of the leading thinkers in the space and journalists in the space, Jeremy Burke. So we're welcoming him back to Cannabis Capital Podcast today. Jeremy, good to see you again. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Ross. That intro made me seem more probably more dignified than I am, but, I, but I'm happy to get into it with you. So. Let's do it. Well, you know, it's our story. We get to tell it like we want it, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Winner's right history or something, something like that. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> well, speaking of writing history, going beyond the headlines, let's jump right in because you're out there in the forefront of some exciting new projects. So first of all, tell everybody where they can find you and um, let's talk about your new newsletter, Cultivated. For sure. So last time I went on this podcast, I was the senior cannabis reporter at, at Business Insider. I've since left Business Insider to launch my own venture. It's called Cultivated News. So you can find it www.cultivated.news or, or follow me on Twitter. I, I post the link to it at JF Burke. Um, and, and the genesis of the newsletter is really to take the reporting that I was doing at Business Insider, but build a B2B-ish, and, I, and I'll explain why-ish a little bit in, in a little bit more detail, but to build a newsletter for, for professionals in the cannabis industry. Um, it, it breaks down everything you need to know from headlines on Capitol Hill, international news, um, to what's really going on inside cannabis companies, how they're making decisions, how they're looking at the market, and how investors like Ross are looking at the market and what they're looking for. So it's both um, a little bit adversarial, it, it's, it's hardcore reporting, but it's also educational. Um, and I hope it's a fun read too. So you know, if you work in cannabis, if you're interested in cannabis, I'd encourage you to subscribe. It's free. It's weekly right now. It will be twice weekly soon. Um, and once you know, I get all my ducks in a row, it'll actually be a daily newsletter. So I'm um, working towards that. As a reader from edition one, it's great. I love getting it in my, in my inbox. And what's really interesting about it is that it seems to be a natural progression from a lot of the conversations that we have offline together and checking in on the market and the things that we're looking at doing together. I love what you said about Capitol Hill. So maybe this is the Cannabis Capitol Hill episode, or at least <laughs> starting there. Look, so I would love to touch on policy, but maybe we should just go backwards. I read your uh, Cultivated Newsletter today, and it really struck a chord, as it always does. Introducing, you know, some of the, <laughs> what did we say, cannabis emptor, buyer beware <laughs> sort of uh, problems with the cannabis space. Let's talk a little bit about what you're covering today and some of your per perspectives. I think that's a great entrance point. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, I can go a couple ways. Like, like the newsletter, it's sort of the way I think about it is it's a little bit about what's interesting to me, right, when I'm writing it. Um, and hopefully that's interesting to the people that are reading me. Um, you know, journalists is only as good as its sources. So it's sort of a reflection of, like Ross said, all these ongoing conversations I've had. Um, so, you know, I, I can start anywhere. I mean, I think one interesting piece just, you know, by dint of me living in New York City, loving New York City, I'm, I'm very interested in what's going on with the cannabis story there. Um, and I think there ha there's been a lot of reporting around, you know, what the regulators are, are doing incorrectly. I think that's been a lot of the focus. And while they have a lot of room to improve, you know, I try not to throw stones. Like, I'm not a regulator. I can be critical of them as a reporter should be, but I could not pretend to do a better job than they can. 
so the angle I took on that was, okay, instead of just throwing more shots at these regulators, why don't we take a look at what consumers think about the industry, right? There hasn't been a lot of data around that. There hasn't been a lot of studies showing like where consumers are buying their cannabis, what they think about it, or, or why uh, they're choosing to buy at these places. And just to kind of back up and set the stage there, um, New York City or New York State has legalized cannabis for over two years now, but there's about you know, I think the last count was seven or eight dispensaries, legal dispensaries open in the state. So go figure where all the product is coming from. It's from illicit dispensaries. These are basically just bodegas or convenience stores that open up. And now because there's no penalties, they can sell cannabis, right? And so I worked with a company called NugMD. They're like a telehealth platform for for cannabis, medical cannabis patients. And they... What, what is their name again? NugMD. N-U-G-G-M-D. Do you think some of these quirky naming mechanisms are going to be some of the undoing of the real potential there? I mean, it seems weird to me to commingle nugs with telehealth, right? I'm like, it'd probably be the last place I would go. My professional answer would be, I should not <laughs> opine on that. My personal answer would be yes. And I, I make that distinction because, you know, I cleverness and I get the, uh, wanting to be a little tongue-in-cheek and using puns, for sure. It's not the way I would do things personally. Look, we used to say on this podcast, we would talk about blunt truths, right? Like, yes, I get the plan words, but at a certain point, like telehealth is a serious real business that that is an incumbent healthcare service offering that is going to be disrupted by the symptom of cannabis being legalized. Like, that is true. Is it symptomatic of the key sort of players in the place that or players in the space that, you know, some of this might get in the way? Like, I think if I was advising them, I'll give you my personal opinion, my professional opinion, like I would do a name change on that company because I don't think institutional investors or the healthcare institutions that will need to get on board with this will take them seriously. Totally. And look, I agree with you. Your perspective is definitely a good one. And it's an educated one is, you know, you're an investor yourself. There's the aspect of it undermining and, and you know, to NugMD's perspective, like the seriousness of the work they're doing, I think, like the, the data they gave me is, is really good. and it's, it's rigorous. Yeah, I actually don't know them and I'd like to connect with them. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's a good piece of feedback for them. If, they, if they're looking <laughs> yeah. for a little more, a little more money. But, you know, regardless, like it's, you know, I don't, I don't want to go off too much of a tangent here, yeah, but yeah, I will, I will say this. I mean, you know, you can see it play out in, in you know, in, in, with my expertise and media coverage of the industry, right? Every headline has to have some sort of stupid pun and it's like 2023. And for some reason, old editors at, you know, stodgy newspapers, like it hasn't gotten old for them to keep throwing those puns in there. Um, and I think it does a disservice to the seriousness of the coverage, right? The, the importance of the issues that we reporters are working on. I think it's silly. I would like to move past it. <laughs> like not every every article you see about Anheuser-Busch says, are you getting buzzed off beers or something like that? It's like it's mm -hmm. the beer industry. It's a serious industry. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that, that's my little, that's my little tangent. No, that's there. interesting. Yeah. But you know, I think it's a huge problem and we can, we can get into that further. Episode three. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but going back to the survey, I mean, basically I wanted to really understand like who is, buying from legal dispensaries and who's buying from illicit dispensaries and are there consequences of these actions, right? And I think those consequences are hard to determine. But the truth of the matter is, is that, like I said, there's only a handful of legal legal shops and the illicit ones, you know, there's no oversight. There's no jurisdiction for any regulatory agency to say like, hey, you have to sell to people over 21. 
these products have to be tested according to the state guidelines that we've set out that are that are evidence based and science backed. And so oftentimes people are just buying at these stores. And not only that is a I thought uh, maybe I don't know if my readers did, but I thought it was sort of a shocking number of people trusted the products that they were buying at these illicit dispensaries, you know, upwards of 42%, I think, or, or excuse me, 44% said that, you know, they think the products are accurately labeled in terms of THC content at illicit dispensaries, or at least enough that they are concerned about that. Over 40% said that they trust the products are tested for contaminants, at least enough that they're not concerned about that. And the truth of the matter is, is like, that's not happening at illicit cannabis shops. And if it is happening, it's because the products have been transported illegally from states that do have the capacity to do it, like, let's say, Colorado or California. So I think my message to regulators here is that there's a clear public health risk. Um, ultimately, it's probably a matter of time before people get sick from, from tainted products, whether it's heavy metals or pesticides. And the longer you don't have legal stores open, the more risk you're injecting into the market. Um, over time, it will catch up. God forbid people haven't gotten sick yet, but you know, in, in early 2020, late 2019, you know, the Valley with the, the lung issues with vapes, that was a concern and that was straight from the illicit market. And it's four years later and we haven't, it seems like we haven't really learned from that yet. Um, and at the end of the day, like the other data just quickly that stood out to me was that, you know, 72% of, of, of survey respondents said that price and convenience were the ultimate factors in deciding where they're going to buy their cannabis. They're pretty agnostic to whether it's a legal store or an illegal store. They might rather buy legally, but if it's too expensive and too far out of the way, they're not going to. That's a risk. Like cannabis legalization was supposed to solve these health risks. Clearly, it's it's failing right now in New York. Um, and so it's something I'm, I'm paying very close attention to. I think it's one of the most important issues. Uh, and candidly, we think everybody's most people uh, are asleep at the wheel when it comes to the regulatory headwinds that are in front of us. So to step back for a minute and come full circle to this public health risk, which I think is very real in this illicit market, we've got a quality issue and that exists also in the legal market too. I mean, everybody knows of testing labs out there that will just give mm -hmm. you the results that you want, right? And so we're building these systems, but this is a, this is still in its infancy, right? These are still new a new emerging market. We're putting new business models together. I will go on record saying I think the Achilles heel to the entire recreational industry is is vertical integration. And we can come back to that. But I think that is the centerpiece of where a lot of this stems from. And the challenges are going to be potentially insurmountable. So it's not a space that we invest in, but I think it's very problematic. When we look at the regulatory headwinds, and this is where the Capitol Hill piece comes in, that I think is really important. Um, I would like to hear some of the things that you're tracking. Look, there's been a lot of tailwinds, right? And regulatory momentum and advocacy momentum has created the cannabis industry, right? You know, I believe it's an economy, but the cannabis industry is applicable when you look at the recreational market, right? And let's be clear, like going in and buying pre-rolls at, you know, MedMen, that's not healthcare, okay? So you can call them patients all you want, but that is not medicinal, right? Like, it's a fallacy. So, you know, people are acquiring for intoxication and... You know, all of this has come about because regulators were embracing, you know, easing regulations, right? So that we could bring cannabis into the legal market, which we should do, we have to do, and we are doing, right? 
But I think we've experienced a period of sort of like positive momentum where it's just kind of people like just assume there's an inevitability of like, yeah, we'll just get this change and get that change. You get a new law in the books. Now we're starting to see a lot of pushback. I mean, Cory Booker himself said mm. recently, you know, cannabis is a dangerous drug and he is not wrong. <laughs> right. But that's the nuance with this where it's it's not the same as just putting, you know, chocolate bars, you know, or, or you know, sugary drinks in 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 uh, gas stations. Right. Look, I totally agree with you on the education standpoint there. Both regulators and lawmakers themselves often don't necessarily understand what they're regulating. And I think cannabis is like one of the most clear examples of that. I You can you can look at in, in modern times. Right. As you say, it's it's not a harmless product. Smoking is smoking. Um, you know, adults are free to choose what they want to do, but you know, there are effects on your lungs, and there's more increasing research that you know there are carcinogens in in marijuana or cannabis smoke. Like I, you know, the jury is still out. I don't know, but there's some troubling research there. I think, especially where there's really troubling research, and, and I've written about this a bunch, is is on you know developing brains um, and the risks of things like mental health. Uh, whether that's, you know, lower risk, like increasing anxiety, depression, or higher risk, like like those people who are genetically predisposed to schizophrenia, um, smoking a lot of pot in your youth can maybe tip the balance where uh, maybe it wouldn't have expressed itself in adulthood, but because of adding drugs to your system, it does. And while, you know, that's not a reason to clutch your pearls and say we shouldn't legalize this, it is information that is very useful for regulators. And I'm of the opinion that regulation is good, Um, you know, maybe outing myself as a liberal here, but regulation is good and and we should sort of bring potentially dangerous products under regulatory purview. And I think that's the project of cannabis legalization. It's not saying this is harmless, let everyone do this free for all libertarian thing. It's saying like, here's a product that we can do a lot better job at, at hitting sort of public health goals by regulating it, by, by bringing it to the light. Not only that, you know, we can capture tax revenue and do all these other things and, and create industries sure. and all these other knock-on effects. But ultimately, it's like, you know, we're trying to make this safer for people who will choose to use it or not choose to use it. Or, sorry, will definitely choose to use it because it's legal. They're going to do, do it anyways. And, and that's that's the catch-up aspect. And you can sort of, you know, I'll, I'll let you ask the question, but you can go, go into that further with the Safe Banking Act, which is... Um, you know, sort of, I think, a little bit of a ham-fisted way for regulators to wrap their heads around the industry with the cat being so far out of the bag and so far ahead of where legislation and regulation is right now. Look, I think clearly it's a net positive to have legal cannabis, right? But it's not a binary yes or no, right? right? And I think that's part of the part of the issue. When Cory Booker said these are dangerous drugs and I said I agree with him, you know, it's not that there's, you know, a fatal dose, right? They're safe and well tolerated. It's things like what you said about like what what happens. We don't, there's certain things we don't know yet, right? And that research needs to be funded and understood. Like the same way that, you know, an adolescent brain reacts to alcohol, like it'd be hard not to assume that there's going to be some effects on an adolescent brain. And should there be, you know, should we have those safeguards? Is that the, is that the right way to have safe, well-managed cannabis in our communities right so you know we saw this in 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 oregon it's it's and not to pick on oregon but like in in generally in states like okay we've got you know dispensaries and and then it's then it's like all of a sudden then we ask the question well what do we do with people driving on this right 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 and and there's no test for it do you have to use field sobriety like it's actually not a 
you know, the, the, you can have THC in your system for an extended period of time and not be intoxicated. So how do you, it's not the same as alcohol. You can't regulate the same. Like, okay, if we are going to be responsible and build industries around this, right, there needs to be guardrails and regulations that spell out the landscape under which that we're going to operate. Like what's stunning to me was the, the statistic that you said earlier about how many people assume that their safe and quality products are what they say they are in the illegal market because there's this assumption with CBD, right? When you go into a Walgreens and there's a CBD thing on a CBD product, which is, you know, it's barely a nutraceutical, right? On the shelf, people assume that there's been the rigor and, and research and quality control processes in place of everything else that's on those shelves. And it's not, nobody has ever done any toxicity testing on cannabis or CBD in particular, right? So those confluence of things, great. So let's put those, let's not hide that in a corner. Let's put that knowledge on the table and understand how to build a regulatory environment around it because it will not be a zero regulatory environment. The question is, is do we want to collaborate for smart regulations or do we want to have to react to knee-jerk reactions, which is typically what happens? It reminds me almost, and this is going to be kind of a a twisted metaphor, so, so bear with me, but with CBD, at Walgreens, it reminds me of Victorian England, where you had home remedies for everything. You had cocaine and Coca Cola. Like, sure, there's a kernel of truth to some of these things, but there was no structured way to evaluate safety and efficacy, right? And that is what <laughs> that is the situation we are in with cannabis right now in, in cities like New York. And you know, I'll just give an example. Like, I, I'm also I'm, I'm in, in business school right now, and so I'm around a lot of otherwise smart people my age who go out and consume cannabis and drink and whatever. And like, even they who don't aren't really paying attention to the industry didn't know that where they were buying their cannabis was illegal. These are smart people who have access to this information. And and the fact that they don't know means that everyone probably doesn't know. And when you're in the cannabis industry, you think that these are inherent truths, but they're really not. And I think we have a duty to to speak to that, right? And so it's just an interesting question. And, And I think that the one other thing I'll say on that is that, you know, a lot of advocates do set up the binary you spoke to, right? They're like, alcohol does all this bad stuff. You know, cannabis doesn't, it's not lethal. There's medicinal benefits. So like, why is it illegal? I don't think that's the right question to ask. The right question to ask is, how do you move use into safer patterns, right? Because you can make the same argument on their side. Like you can take the sort of Alex Berenson, Kevin Sabat approach where they sort of cherry pick studies that show negative effects and again, I've you know written about this, I'll plug my newsletter again, but where they cherry pick studies and they show negative effects and they say, this is a reason to put the cat back in the bag and say, we're not going to legalize this because of all these effects. That's not really scientific to me. The right answer is to figure out how policy can balance both the harms and benefits of this. And that's a really hard problem. And it demands a lot of time, attention and focus from lawmakers. Obviously, they're pulled in many different directions. Cannabis is far from top of mind on Capitol Hill, but but it deserves that treatment, I believe. I mean, I think, you know, especially the media has a role to play in, in pushing that. And so you've been writing recently on the Safe Banking Act, and you just mentioned a minute ago that it seems to be um, the area where some of these conversations are happening. So what's, what, what is the latest? What is, um, what are you re- reporting on seeing and, and um, where is this going directionally? Because safe banking has been on the table for four years now. Yeah. Three so, 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, I called it the ninth time's a charm. It was the ninth <laughs> time that the Safe Banking Act, you know, ha- has been proposed in the House. The new piece here is that it received a full committee here or a full Senate Banking Committee hearing in the Senate. It had never received a markup in the Senate before. Uh, symbolically, that that means something that senators are paying attention to this. But when you really hear the level of discourse around the nuances of legislation in the Senate, uh, it does lead you to be less than optimistic about its chances of passing. Um, now, you know, I, I don't want to put in the ground and say it's not going to pass. I'd love to be wrong. It would certainly help, you know, my own career aspirations if it passed. So I have, I do have a dog in this race, but you know, at the same time, it's like when you listen to Republican lawmakers, a lot of them are just saying like cannabis is bad and harmful. So why are we going to allow them to bank? It's like a very kind of silly pedantic argument they're making. And then on the other side, you have progressives who I think rightfully so don't want banking legislation to advance ahead of full-scale legalization. But at the same time, it's like, if you're hearing these arguments from Republicans, it's like, maybe you should go after banking because nothing else is going to happen, right? They're so far behind the eight ball in terms of the legalization debate that I really don't see if you could get one, let alone 10 Republican senators, you need to... uh, Past the filibuster, you know, into, into full-scale legalization votes. I think, you know, a good example of that is Steve Daines from Montana. Um, he's sponsored the Safe Banking Act numerous times, and he will continually go on record and say, I am against legalization, but here's why we need safe banking, right? And so it's like, I think it is incumbent upon Democrats and progressives to, to work under that framework rather than this pie in the sky, like, we're going to get full-scale legalization passed, and we're going to reform the criminal justice system using this. Um, I, I don't see that happening. Now, the other nuance there is that there is talk of tying different pieces of legislation together to make both sides happy. Um, one is adding the HOPE Act, which would basically give states a fund to expunge cannabis-related records and tying that to safe banking. Like That, to me, is a huge win-win, both for progressive advocates as well as Republicans, right? It's palatable to both sides. Even Republicans don't want to see people unjustly imprisoned, or maybe I'm projecting, I'd say most Republicans don't want to see people unjustly imprisoned. And most progressives want to make it easier for minority-owned cannabis businesses to actually have the nuts and bolts of, of being in business and growing their business. So that is my one sort of optimistic take there, that I'm hopeful that if hope is tied to safe banking, there is a possibility that we can get there. But the more that there's infighting on both sides, the less that becomes a possibility. You know, the one other piece we saw recently last week, there's a group, I think it was the Minority Cannabis Association. I have to fact check myself on that, but they wanted to add language into safe banking that would allow more formal capital markets interaction with the cannabis industry, meaning uplisting or, or being able to list these stocks on the NASDAQ near stock exchange, allow broker dealers and investment banks to come in and really do deal making in the industry. And obviously, that's that's beneficial, it would free up a lot of liquidity, it would give a lot more businesses a lot more avenues to grow. But at the same time, like, that to me is a little bit unrealistic given both the limitations that Republicans have on the bill, as well as progressives who really are against, you know, the Wall Street boogeyman coming into the industry. Like you have to work under that kind of ideological divide and figure out the narrow path that this can get through. And the path gets narrower and narrower each time the bill gets debated, in my view. That's super interesting. And 
fascinating. I mean, I was in D.C. for the very first vote on safe banking and working with some of the lobbyists, some of the language, in particular, the areas we were focusing on were things like uplisting and being able to have, you know, companies on the U.S. exchanges as opposed to going up to Canada and, you know, and all these things if they're operating under the legal framework of a, on a state-by-state basis. I mean, it, it's simple to sit here and say it, but that's a no-brainer to me, right? In the sense of like, if a company is able to operate under illegally in any business in any state, then they should have access to the fullness of the financial system, right? You know, morphine is a Schedule two substance. You know, you can't tell me that morphine companies, A, it has right. an important role in healthcare, can't, you know, float an IPO or bank in their state, right? And the interesting thing when I was, it, this had a moment where it felt like cannabis was one of the only bipartisan issues in D.C., especially in that time when we were back doing these first votes. I think we were looking to whip um, maybe six votes or something, six Republican votes. So we got 11, right, in a, in a live debate on the floor that actually, and everybody was over the middle, like, oh, this is really happening. Sort of both sides are like, hey, we got something here that feels like a win-win. And here we are, how many turns later? And if the window is getting smaller and smaller for getting something done, and the path to thread, as you described it, is getting narrower and narrower, like everybody loses, right? So at some point, we just need functional government to make some initial steps to pass this. Right. There are other reporters who are better placed than me to speak to the nuances of who's a yay, who's a nay, and why that may be. But, you know, two things are true, right? Safe banking as written, just up to the House, it would be law by now. The Senate yeah. is the obstacle. Um and I think, you know, when I talk to, to aides in these offices, these are always off the record chats, they just say like, every single piece of, of social justice language you add to it, you lose a Republican vote. And, and so like, that's the calculus, yeah. right? When you're working under that framework, it's pretty impossible. Like, I don't see how the math maths there and how that would work. At the same time, personally speaking, when I put on my own view into the situation, like, of it's such a common sense, no brainer piece of legislation. Like I totally agree with you. If states are able to legalize cannabis, like why can't they list on the NASDAQ? Like this would help the industry so much. And it's, it's completely yeah. unfair to these companies, right? It, 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 it's, it's an unfair market that they're operating in. And not only that, it's like, I was, I was just looking in and I'm sure you're familiar with this. Like we, I was thinking about 280E, which I'm sure listeners of this podcast know it. So I won't go into detail to describe it, but you know, the genesis of that, Federal tax code is is one cocaine dealer in Minnesota who's trying to deduct hmm. his business expenses in 1974. He made a hundred grand selling coke, meth, and, and weed. You know, in, in Minneapolis in 1980, in 1974, got taken to court in 1982. Basically, was ordered by the IRS to file his taxes. He tried to discuss, deduct his cost of goods sold, and they said no way. Um, and Congress passed a rule the next year, 1982. Right. So like, that's the world we're living under, where 50 years later, these very well-established legal businesses are still operating under this bill that was really meant to slam one specific cocaine dealer in Minneapolis in the 70s. If that doesn't speak to like this world of cannabis that we're living in, I don't know what does, but, but that's it. And it's like, the fact that we can't get that changed doesn't give me a ton of hope for getting really good, broad, full-scale legalization passed. At the same time, you know, I'm sure political scientists study this, but when public policy moves, or sorry, public opinion moves so far ahead of Congress on an issue, I'm sure policy will follow. 
eventually, but you need to do the groundwork to get there. And that's going to take a lot of work. The risk of the you also run the risk of the pendulum swinging in the other direction as well. Like there's all this exuberance and enthusiasm, then the recorrect is even more back to, oh, all of a sudden now we're back to complete prohibition. Somewhere in the middle is where everything shakes out, right? Exactly. And clearly this pendulum is swinging in the other direction. And I would hope that, you know, the folks that are advocating for the issues that are important to them are able to see the forest through the trees, right? In, you know, we need the foundational frameworks of some wins here. We can't have just all losses across the board on the regulatory side, right? Exactly. And and look, like if you are, I mean, I, I don't like I, I don't invest in, in cannabis stocks just to, to maintain editorial independence. But at the same time, like, you know, if, if every if every catalyst it's not a fails, great place to invest, right. so you're fine. <laughs> no, no, sure. But like, but look, if I was an investor, it's like you, you do want you need a win here, right? The whole sector needs it. Like the entire sector just trades basically on the whims of what, you know, a couple of Republican senators think. Like if <laughs> if Safe Bank passes, it's going to go up. If it doesn't pass, it's going to continue to tumble. And, and that's a crazy situation to be in. Not only if you're an investor, but if you're running a public cannabis company. Like that that's hard to deal with. I, I don't envy that job right now. Yeah, it's it, it it's it's challenging for sure. And look, as you know, people love to, and you probably see this a lot when you're out there talking with folks in the space. And, and I would imagine you get a barrage on a regular basis of just like the bitch sessions, right? Of yeah. like, Hey, Oh, this has been done and that's been done. And Oh, this is unfair. And oh, and big wall, the wall street boogeyman and blah, blah, and all this stuff. Like, okay, look at, you know, look at the medical device space, right? How many medical device companies are started every year and how many of them fail? It's going to be maybe 10%, maybe less. I don't know. I'm making this up, but there's no way it's more that's actually succeed, right? So why would we expect those ratios Mm. to be any different in any other industry, right? So starting companies is hard. Startups are hard. Emerging industries are hard. Emerging sectors are hard. You don't get a free pass just because you love cannabis. And unfortunately or fortunately, you know, the cream rises to the top in any economic system that's an open market, like like a free a capitalist free capitalist market like we're in. So the capitalist perspective, you know, has to play a role in this, right? Otherwise, you know, what do we have? You know, state run, you know, cannabis dispensaries? Look, I you know, I'd say my own my own opinions are a little bit more pro capital, but many people I talk to I think would be just fine with that. And that's the dynamic I think that that when the two sides talk to each other, they just don't really get. I think there's a lot of people who would just say like, you know, there's a lot of people who, who not like capitalism, do not think it's effective, don't want to see it. And while sure, they want a little money in their pocket, everyone does. I think they would be just fine with a government run ration of cannabis. Now, I don't know if the product was <laughs> shitty. Sorry for my language. If the product is bad. No, I, we can I, say whatever the fuck okay, we want. Yeah. I mean, if the product was shitty, like, look, that might change. But I think there's more people when I talk to investors, there's a lot more people than I think they think that would be just fine with a completely socialized cannabis system. Right. And then they will be the first people that'll say, Oh, the government's putting like nanobots in my cannabis to track me. Right? Sure. Like, and, and I think the Venn diagram, <laughs> where are we between, go? like, where does this go? It's, I, I, look, it's, it's not my opinion, but, but the Venn diagram there, um, I think it's, it's, it's larger than, than I think people give, give yeah. credit to. And it's an important function of how advocacy works. I think on the, on, especially on the nonprofit mm-hmm. side, there are people who would say that the desire to 
wealth for yourself that may take away from someone else is is wrong. And that's the standpoint they're coming at this from. And that is why you get such vociferous opposition to safe banking. Now, personally, do I think that's right? No. Do I think that's a useful way to regulate in the economic and political and social system we have right now? No, I think it lacks nuance. And I think it lacks an understanding of reality. It's, it's quite idealistic. But at the same time, it's, it's useful to understand that perspective when you hear this opposition in order to target more effective arguments against it. Look, when I started, uh, I opened up my book. Oh, shameless plug. <laughs> the air horn shameless there. book plug, shameless book plug. When I, <laughs> that's, a, that's a new trick for the podcast, Jeremy, first here. When I opened up the book, the first thing I did was acknowledge advocacy as you know, creating this potential for an industry, right? Like you have to start there, but it's a building block and then you build upon that, right? So it seemed, from my perspective, Smart regulations is the building block from which that gives us the opportunity to advance, right? So this is what, and it's always so weird to me when the word progressive like has a negative, you know, connotation to it. Everything should be progressive. We should be progressing, not regressing. There's no certainty other than you know the status quo will change, right? So when we think about when we think about the regulatory environment, the size of the market. And this distinct bifurcation now developing from our vantage point between, you know, real med- medical applications versus, you know, holistic, right? You know, it's a challenging, the the recreational market is challenging. I said, you know, they're shitty stocks or whatever, but like investors are fatigued. Like there's no question. I, I talking with one of my investors, you know, this week and it's like, God, oh, you know, I'd like to be doing some of these deals, but you know, I've been getting beaten up. Right. And, you know, I hate to say it, but what somebody said early on, you know, somebody who I knew in the space was was like, listen, don't ever confuse a bull market with brains, right? And so I think we are still unwinding, right, this bull market. Like, so this this irrational exuberance drove valuations into the stratosphere, right? And you're having this reset. That was happening whether there was a pandemic or not, right? Or whether there's that that happened pre-pandemic, the reset of the collapse of the public cannabis securities anyway. But these are these are cycles that run through. When you have a functioning economy, there will be cycles and everything. There's no just one way. I mean, that's what got us into the, the housing crisis problem in 2008. Every model just showed the value of houses only going one direction, right? They go the other direction, everything falls apart. So look, we've got to navigate, and this is a new frontier market. It is going to be choppy, right? It's certainly not for the faint of heart. But the silver lining to all that is we've accepted that cannabis is is part of our communities. And to me, that feels like the biggest heavy lift has been done, right? This is like, yes, you can have conversations around are there health benefits, are there challenges, you know, is, you know, whatever the sort of arguments are. But at the end of the day, people are spending money on it. There's an economic system that's working. Mm. Regulations need to catch up. Yeah, totally agree. And I, and I think one of the things you can look at is is Canada. Um, you know, I'm, I'm Canadian as you are. and Yeah, I'm going to be there this week. I'm going up to Canada on Sunday. But, but the point is, is that if five years into the Canadian federal legalization experiment, if there were things that would cause the sky to fall, the sky would have fallen. And For sure. even people who did not like it, even communities like Mississauga, which is a big suburb right next to Toronto, just allowed cannabis stores a month and a half ago. Uh, even though cannabis is legalized in 2018. And if you go around downtown Toronto, 
you know, every other block for better or worse, you know, has some sort of dispensary on it. Right. Um, so the thing is, is that like people react very strongly to social change and, and cannabis legalization is a huge social change and you can debate the merits and the pitfalls of it. But ultimately when you get a cannabis store in your community, it doesn't really change much, right? You can just not shop there. And that's probably the only thing you'll see is it's, you know, what was once an empty storefront or, something else is now a cannabis shop and that's like really all the change and maybe is. you're getting a lot better music coming around yeah or or even you're getting more people <laughs> visiting your community like there are like look yeah. there are tangential economic benefits to this for sure for um sure. And, and i want to be clear-eyed about that but at the same time it's like what i don't understand and i can speak more freely because i'm not you know sort of employed by mainstream publication anymore is like i just don't understand the reticence change that many lawmakers have and i feel like you find that reticence um the reticence is further entrenched the more ideologically extreme on either side the lawmakers are i think that's interesting because i think it is incumbent upon all of us that are in this space you know our us as investors you as a journalist and entrepreneur founders advocates doesn't matter so we're at play it is not the job of regulators to be cannabis experts like that, their job is to regulate, right? And let's just assume that government at least tries to function the way it's supposed to, right? Which is ultimately enacting policy on behalf of the interests of the majority of their constituents, right? It should, you know, make things easier to do business, not harder. It should make things safer, not more dangerous, right? Like just the general tenets of, of, of government. It's incumbent upon us to educate those people. We can't show up to have these conversations with the regulators and expect that they know the story of Charlotte's Web, right? right? Like, so, and we have to, I, ta- I was talking to somebody that was actually a lobbyist or worked with a lobbying group at Google and I asked the question, like, you know, that's interesting, like Google, huge organization, or like huge company of them, like, what do you lobby for as Google? Aren't you already so entrenched? And sa- said, no, she said, it's our job to educate regulators, to give them the information, even if it's not skewed towards a specific objective. Like we just want them to have the fullness of information and be able to collaborate where we can help. And I was like, wow, that's a really sensible, non-nefarious way to engage with government, <laughs> right? And I feel like if you get too entrenched on these certain agendas and individual opinions or life experience, it gets in the way of things that can be done for the broader good. It just seems that way to me. No, I think I think that's a really good point. And you know, I think I think one of the things that I hear from you know advocates, mostly on the left, is that, and I think rightfully in a lot of cases, they're very concerned with regulatory capture because ultimately the groups that have the ears of lawmakers and potential regulators are well-funded groups, and well-funded groups in cannabis are you know, generally a few pretty well monopolized, entrenched, you know, multi-state operators. And look, like, you know, they're incentivized by their shareholders to make more business for themselves. Like, that's what they should do. If I was the CEO of one of those companies, that is what I would do. Um, if I was invested in one of those companies, I'd expect my CEO or, or my, my C-suite to be doing that. But it's um, not some hidden agenda. Right. right? That's like, my this point. Is thing, like, yeah. yeah. It, it's, of course, they want to make money for themselves, right? It involves, like, you know, yes, maybe should be a little more consideration made because of what cannabis is and what it means. And, and it means both historically and socially and personally to many people, but it's not nefarious. It's not evil. Like that's what companies are doing 
all the time in every single industry. Um, when your first interaction with it is cannabis, maybe that puts people on the back foot a little bit, but that's something, that's a system that can be worked around. Like there, there's a world in which like, you know, Cure Leaf can make a lot of money, but progressive advocates can have their own micro cultivation, home grow where they're sharing with each other. Right. Like that all can exist under the same umbrella. It's just, you have to be careful to keep yourself aligned on these objectives, I think. Um, and that no, may be no, easier to done. Just speaks but. To, I was just having this conversation with one of my investors before we jumped on this call, just around generally, you know, the lack of sort of public discourse, right. And the, the willingness to have, conversations and have tough conversations and debate, right? Like it's okay to change your mind. Like it's like, it's, it's okay to say, you know what? I didn't actually have the fullness of information and maybe this way is better than the way I thought it was. It doesn't matter what side of an issue that you're on, right? You can only get to resolutions if you can evolve your thinking. And I think that's my point is that, you know, the more we are focused on putting facts on the table and representing, you know, truth and science, um, which I think is one of the most important parts of this, certainly from our healthcare vantage point, and that, you know, regulatory pathways can exist and should be open for business. Then you get into the nuances of like, how do you, how do you put those together and how do you adjust them and how do you tinker with that, right? But trying to take big, broad strokes every at bat isn't going to get us there. You should see my Twitter DMs every time I release a newsletter to see if people really want to uh, productively disagree or they want to wow. <laughs> they want to cast. Well, I can't me, wait. Right? I can't wait till I, they hear this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, look, it, it's fine. Like that's sort of part of the role that that I've, I've chosen to take, like being a little bit public and, and my sort of opinions and perspectives. You're going to get that as you should. Yeah, but ultimately, you know, by and large, you can generally discount the hysterical opinions, and you can talk to really smart people who who might have an opposing viewpoint. That's a really good one, right? Like there are people both on the left and right that are really smart and, and differ from me in a lot of these issues we've talked about that I'm always willing to hear out and they're always willing to hear me out. Um, and I think that's at the end of the day, it's like you do have to kind of pick and choose your battles in terms of these little personal conflicts. But overall, it's a microcosm of the broader debate around honing in on a strategy that benefits both the industry and the movement as two separate but mutually intertwined pieces of cannabis legalization. Um, and I think that's where the challenge is. It's like right now, the movement could not be further apart from the industry. Um, and ultimately, all that's going to do is undermine the overall goal that both sides share. Look, as always, such an interesting conversation. Um, I love hearing directly from you the things that you're working on, Jeremy. Uh, I would encourage everybody to sign up for Jeremy's newsletter and let's put the podcast up on Twitter and see if we can have some healthy... <laughs> debate around some of the more controversial things. Um, so thanks everybody for joining us for the Cannabis Capitol Hill episode with Jeremy Burke. And Jeremy, again, tell everybody where they can find you. News or find me on Twitter at JF Burke. And please subscribe to the newsletter. Let me know what you think. Um, it's free. So not, not a huge ask. Brilliant. Well, love what you're doing. Really important voice in the space. And I always uh, really enjoy our conversation. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com.
Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Cannabis Health Radio is a podcast about stories from people around the world who have used cannabis to deal with serious ailments, many of them life-threatening. My name is Ian Jessup. My co-host, Corey Yelland, is no stranger to the devastating emotional impact faced by so many people receiving a death sentence diagnosis from a doctor. Told she only had months to live with anal canal cancer, Corey researched and immediately began using cannabis oil to eliminate her cancer and has been cancer-free for more than a decade. She told herself that if it worked, she would spend the rest of her life helping others, which she does tirelessly every day. When you listen to our podcast, you'll hear many stories like Corey's, along with others who have used cannabis oil for many more ailments besides cancer, such as chronic pain, PTSD, MS, and many, many more. As one of our guests said, your podcast gave me the confidence to save my own life. We regularly get messages from listeners who have heard our podcast and use cannabis to solve a serious health issue of their own or that of a loved one. We hope you listen to these stories and be as inspired and moved as we are with each and every episode.